0: 2021 has been another year dominated by COVID-19. But although it may not seem that way, the world of scientific research has remained broad and has also revealed some startling findings way beyond the pandemic. This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr Hilary Guide. Regular listeners will know this podcast is all about conversations, not just between me, our correspondents and experts, but between them as well. Today we'll be exploring this year's most exciting research as chosen by Medical News Today's editors. So joining me in conversation are... Hello, I'm Tim Newman, Senior News Editor.
1: Hi, I'm Anna Sandhoyou. I'm news editor too for
2: Medical News Today.
3: Hi, I'm Maria Kohut. I'm feature editor at Medical
2: News Today. Hi, I'm Yasemin Nicholas-Sakai and I'm an editor at Medical News Today.
0: Between these wonderful people, they have either edited or written themselves nearly 900 news pieces or articles. There were 60 million sessions of people visiting or engaging with the Medical News Today website to access this content. We asked our team of editors to pick just one of their favourite pieces of scientific research. Now, was that a tricky task?
4: Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I was surprised when you told me which bits of medical research you wanted to talk about. There seems to be some sort of theme going on here. So can anyone tell me what links... The phage viruses that live inside our guts, a resource for dermatologists to assess skin conditions in people of colour, vaccine trials missing out the impact on women's periods and the pros and cons of the unlocking from lockdown, or so-called Freedom Day, earlier this year in England.
4: Um, No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyone have a go?
3: I'd say that this is some of the most exciting research of the year and that it has the potential to be very impactful in the future.
2: Yeah, and a lot of them are yet unexplored areas and there's not much research on these topics. So I thought this could kind of create new conversations.
0: How interesting. Um, Well, the thing that struck me is all of them are inspired by some way or another of trying to correct a wrong assumption. So a lot of shifts in science are when someone goes, we've assumed that for years and years and years, but what if it's wrong? So let's think about it. So let's start with Tim's topic. Tim, you are fascinated by something called bacteriophage or phage that replicate inside our bacteria, inside our gut. What are they?
4: Basically, they're viruses that kill bacteria. They're everywhere. They're not just inside our gut. But anywhere that you find bacteria, you'll find phages. One paper referred to them as virtually omnipresent, which I love. And some freshwater sources, they can contain up to 10 billion phages per milliliter. So these things are everywhere, which is interesting anyway. But a recent study, uh, they identified a new phage that lives in the gut, which isn't massively surprising necessarily because we know so little about them. But what's interesting is they found it in 14% of poo samples from 16 countries. So it's quite widespread. And that means that it might well be important for human health. So what do you find so exciting about phage? Well, everyone nowadays knows that gut bacteria are important. That's something that over the last sort of 20, 30 years has become common knowledge. But these bacteriophage kill bacteria. So if gut bacteria are really important to health then these phage will be as well and there's about the same number of bacteria on us and in us as there are cells in our body so there's a lot of bacteria but what people don't know is that phage outnumber these bacteria by a factor of 10 so there's just an incredible amount of these phages inside of us and we don't know anything about them but they must be doing something they can't just be killing off our microbial visitors and having no effect So I think I'm interested in it because we don't know much about it, basically. Anna, what did you think?
1: I was wondering whether, in the same way that we have good bacteria and bad bacteria in our gut, is there a similar analogous finding with the phages, would you say? Would there be good and bad
4: ones? Yeah, it's a good question. I think because it's such early days, they don't know yet. I think it's only relatively recently that we've been able to distinguish between good and bad bad bacteria, in inverted commas. But I think that you could easily say that if if there's a type of phage that kills off good bacteria, then you could probably consider that to be a bad virus. But I think we're going to have to do a lot more work before they find out these relationships. It's going to be really complicated. And we already know that gut bacteria and health, that interplay is incredibly complex. So if you add in all of these really highly specific phages, it's going to be a long time before we can distinguish who's the goody and who's the baddie.
0: Maria,
3: did you want to add something? I'm wondering if they're actually playing a role in maintaining that balance of different bacterial populations in the gut. Because as we know, if there's an imbalance, there's going to be an infection, there's going to be some sort of illness happening.
4: Dysbiosis, they call it, don't they? When when, uh, gut bacteria populations are either there's too many bad ones or there's too few good ones or there's um, not a strong variety of bacteria. And yes, I think that you could easily see how a phage that was particularly predating on one sort of bacteria could throw off the whole content and end up making someone ill. But yes, it's early days and we'll, uh, we'll have to wait and find out.
0: So just moving on to uh, my question, which is about what wrong assumption do you think there has been in the past in relation to viruses in the gut and phage or phages?
4: I think part of it is probably that until recently, we hadn't been even considering that viruses in the gut might be important, just like we didn't consider gut bacteria to be important beyond digestion until sort of 40, 50 years ago. And the other assumption that perhaps people have made is historically, phages have been known about for more than a 100 years. And in the past, There was a fair amount of research, particularly in Russia uh, and places like Poland, looking at whether phage therapy could treat bacterial infections because they knew that they were specific and that they would kill bacteria. So it makes sense. But then when antibiotics came around and they were incredibly useful, cheap and easy to manufacture, people stopped looking at phage therapy. But now with antibiotic resistance on the up, A lot of people are revisiting phage therapy and there are a lot of problems that need to be overcome before it becomes a reality. But it could well be that it's a very important innovation in the next 10 to 20 years.
0: Thank you, Tim. Something that is going to be incredibly important as scientists continue to investigate this topic is cataloguing all these gut viruses and phage types. Some groups are already doing this around the world. But let's move on to Anna's story of the year. It's about a different sort of catalogue, and this is one that gets to the heart of why people of colour have worse outcomes for a whole range of conditions compared to people with paler skins. Doctors like me were trained to recognise conditions in fair-skinned people. Earlier in the year, Anna reported on VisualDx, a company involved in a global campaign to correct this bias.
4: The traditional medical system, particularly for dermatology, has often taught diseases in terms of what they look like in lighter skin types. And so, you know, if you look in a lot of our traditional textbooks, there are some images of patients of color, but they are certainly more limited. And so because of that, you know, physicians and medical students have been getting trained for decades, predominantly on lighter skin types, and so this has led to, um, concern for something called representative bias, where when a provider sees a disease, they think of it in the way that they learned it when they were in medical school or in training. And so if they never saw it in darker skin type, they may miss it because they're just thinking of the disease as being representative of what they previously knew.
0: That was Dr. Nada Elbaluk in a Visual DX promotional video, where another doctor was also showing how the demarcation of red erythema on fair skin gives a really clear line. And then when you see it again on darker skin, the red appears brown, so it merges more into the skin. And that's what you have to be trained to spot. Dr. Elberluck is a dermatologist specializing skin of color at the Keck School of Medicine, as well as the director of clinical impact for Visual DX. Anna, you spoke to Dr. Elberluck as part of your reporting, didn't you?
1: Yeah, so in our interview, it quickly became clear that basically worse disease outcomes, morbidity and mortality that result from these inequities and these biases in skin conditions are the main reason why resources such as the one that visual dx created are so important so just to give you some chilling numbers um, some recent statistics note that white adults in the us with melanoma have a five-year survival rate of 92 percent whereas this rate drops to just 67 percent for african american people when black americans do reach the doctor's office and they get diagnosed it's either already at a late stage, or as Dr. Elbuluk pointed out in her interview with me, these biases in dermatology and medical practice that favor white skin could mean that a lot of these conditions may be missed altogether or misdiagnosed. Maria,
3: why has this not been addressed so far?
1: I have a simple word for it, and it's called racism. I don't think there's any other easier way to put it. Systemic racism in clinical practice, systemic racism in medical institutions, medical research among the healthcare professionals in the healthcare community, in the research community. I've spoken to uh, Dr. Elbuluk in our interview very much about the underrepresentation of people of color as well in clinical trials. So even in conditions that primarily affect skin of color, such as eczema or discoloration, they looked at numbers of articles that featured an equitable number of people of color in clinical trials, and I think the numbers were in the single digits, which is quite disappointing.
2: Yaz, yes, did you have something you wanted to add? We need changes, big changes in clinical practice and the way doctors learn about these things. But there are also many myths that pervade about black skin. Like, for example, for many years, it was taught and said that darker skins could not use products containing ingredients such as glycolic acid which is an alpha hydroxy acid and it exfoliates the top layer of the skin because they thought darker skin tones are more prone to hyperpigmentation so that could lead to problems but of course in the last five ten years it has resurfaced and dermatologists that are more accustomed to working with darker skins have revealed that that's not the case it's the overuse that causes problems and of course sun protection. Usually people with melanated skin are told that they are luckier, that they don't tend to get as much sun damage because they have a lot of melanin in their skin to kind of act as a protector. But that's not really the case because yes, it does provide a small degree of protection, but people of black skin actually have to protect their skin as well. And then this also translates into the cosmeceutical industry because When you look at the sunscreens on the market at the moment, especially mineral filtered ones, they don't cater to darker skins because they leave a white cast. So I think that industry also needs a reformation because a lot of the time only people with fair skin are considered when such products are created.
1: Thank you for highlighting all of those issues because that's hugely important and that's a key area. Skin products, hair products... They have also been created with um, fair skin in mind. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to add that it's not just a, a matter of white skin versus black skin. It's an entire spectrum that hasn't been catered for appropriately.
2: Exactly. Being multiracial or multiethnic, that's hard to kind of find the right treatments for yourself as well when you're of a mix, of a certain mix. So,
0: Exactly. Thank you, everyone there. Let's turn to you, Maria. Your choice also challenges this assumption that some people's experiences are less important than others in medical research. Um, You looked at the data gap for women's responses to COVID-19 vaccines, and you've been following the reports of women having at least one disturbed menstrual period after COVID-19 vaccine.
3: So there have been several anecdotal reports linking COVID-19 vaccines to changes to people's menstrual cycles. And those changes are reportedly of many kinds. Some people have missed their periods, some people have had unusually heavy or painful periods following receiving one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, and some people who were not meant to be having their periods, either because they're experiencing menopause or because they're taking contraceptive pills or because they have an IUD, um, they did in fact get their periods. So there have been a lot of these reports, but we don't actually know if they're linked to the vaccine themselves, or if they're linked to other factors, such as stress.
0: Has there been any actual systematic research into it?
3: So there hasn't really been much systematic research. To my knowledge, there's currently just one study addressing this issue, and the study is being conducted by Dr. Catherine Lee, who's at the Washington University School of Medicine, and by Dr. Catherine Clancy at the University of Illinois. So what Drs. Clancy and Lee have done was to start a survey asking people who menstruate, to talk about their experiences after they received COVID-19 vaccine, whether those were experiences of the disturbed menstrual cycle or whether they had absolutely no Problems at all?
0: I think that's really interesting that they're doing that. I followed quite a bit of the story about the side effects around statins, where they found something called the nocebo response, where you expect something bad to happen and so then it happens. So, going back to the COVID 19 vaccines, did the researchers have a control group of people who haven't had the vaccine so they can see if there's a causal effect?
3: When I interviewed them, they actually spoke about the possibility that these vaccines might not actually be
0: the cause for any
3: disturbances, and it may be due to other reasons. However, what they were disappointed by when they spoke to me was the fact that it doesn't seem like in the clinical trials that looked at the safety and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines, anybody actually thought of asking whether or not they might in any way affect menstrual cycles. So that's really the problem that's bothering people. And there has actually even been an editorial in the BMJ fairly recently calling for more research into the ways in which vaccines may or may not affect menstrual cycles.
2: Do you think that the rather abysmal way this issue has been handled, the fact that trials didn't ask participants to report any changes to their menstrual cycles or that researchers didn't even think these were worth collecting data on. Do you think this actually could have contributed to and fueled the widespread misinformation and false claims about COVID vaccines leading to infertility?
3: Oh, for sure, for sure, there's a link with that because not having, I guess, full, complete and accurate information about the potential impacts and risks, of course, people start to worry about things that they don't really have a reason to worry about. And I would just like to add that this is definitely a problem that's part of a much more widespread phenomenon, which is the phenomenon of the gender data gap in clinical trials, So this refers to the fact that a majority of medical data in studies, in clinical trials, historically and even recently, have been collected a lot more about male participants, sometimes to the detriment of female participants. Because if we think about it, various drugs and various treatments will, by necessity, affect female bodies differently to the way in which they affect male bodies. But I think historically there's been this idea that we take the male body as a sort of standard body, and we look at that and we think, well, if that body is affected by this in a certain way, if it reacts to this in a certain way, then that applies to everyone. And it's become very obvious that this isn't
4: true. Tim? I just wanted to say, there's this excellent quote in Maria's article, um, and this is from someone who had experienced period changes after the vaccine, and she says... I feel like if the vaccine were making men's testicles sore, we would all know about it and they would probably be looking into it pretty quickly. (laughs) I just wanted to get that out there.
0: Thank you. Right, let's move on to something else, which I think is going to kind of exercise us. This summer, Yaz wrote about whether or not the science supported England's abandonment of almost all COVID-19 restrictions, where the government removed compulsory mask wearing, social distancing, limits on the number of people who can gather at once. What do you think the strongest argument for removing the restrictions was and the strongest argument for keeping some at least?
2: Well, this was one of the most controversial topics of the year for the UK, and scientists were quite divided. Some of them were in favour of this grand reopening at that particular time, whether it was to reunite families or re-inject some life into shuttered businesses or restore a sense of normalcy after a relatively successful nationwide vaccination campaign. But then the other camp argued that the timing was not quite right especially as the UK was in the middle of a Delta surge at the time and vaccination levels still had not reached the level that everybody had hoped for. But despite these differences, almost all of the scientists converged on one point, and that was that some restrictions, namely mask wearing, should remain in place because COVID-19, as we know it, is an airborne disease and SARS-CoV-2 particles spread throughout the air.
4: My question to you, Yaz, with the the recent changes in the UK, do you think Boris Johnson has done enough? Well, (laughs) um, it's hard to,
2: of course, comment on this without being a scientist, but from a concerned citizen and a vulnerable individual, as classified by the healthcare system, I don't think enough has been done. And most of the decisions haven't been based in science. So of course, the UK has taken a different approach than a lot of countries, and it has chosen the economy and keeping people's livelihoods in place instead of trying to reduce transmission or protect more people. Of course, such measures like mask wearing, they can be a nuisance, but social distancing, a lot of other countries, especially northern European countries or other Asian countries have shown that they work. So I don't think the UK government's approach has been particularly successful.
0: Just to go back to my own themes, if you'll indulge me, Um, what assumptions do you think have been at play in the policy making around COVID-19 and these restrictions?
2: Well, there's so many things to balance, of course, when you're dealing with a pandemic. So you've got to think about healthcare systems. You've got to think about the physical and mental health of your citizens. Uh, you've got to think about the economy, of course, because lockdowns, as easy as it was for privileged people, we were some of them because we were allowed to work from home. But, yeah, governments had to take into account so many factors and put this into a decision that would benefit most. So when balancing All of those things, and behind
0: each would be an assumption, England's government removed all restrictions. But, for example, if they'd given different weight to the severe impact for people with long-term conditions, they would definitely have come to a different conclusion.
4: Like Yes says, there's so many things to take into account. I'm just very glad that I don't have to make those sorts of decisions. But I do think there have been plenty of times over the last almost two years when things have moved way too slowly And today, now, people complaining that they have to wear a mask when they're on a bus. During a pandemic, I think that, to be quite frank, I think it's mad to complain about having to wear a mask. It's just daft. Just wear a mask. That's it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What would you all or any of you, what would you say to the people complaining about wearing masks and social distancing?
1: I'm not sure what I would say directly to them, but I would like to highlight the fact that I feel that this reaction is a very natural reaction in a way. I was reading a bit about behavioral science the other day, and I think the term there is reactance, which is when somebody imposes some restrictions on you, your natural reaction, if you feel that you don't have a lot of leeway, is to just push back against them and I feel that in some ways the messaging around that could have been a little bit better perhaps trying to account for that a little bit to sort of de-stress the fact you know this is not something that you must absolutely do because we tell you to but more here are the reasons why you are protecting yourselves and the people that you love if you choose to do it
2: exactly it could be a matter of life or death for you or someone you love and there have been many companies that have actually created see-through masks especially with deaf people in mind so that could also be a solution if you want to show more of your face. So just thinking about solutions I'm going to give you a really hard task.
0: I want you to think ahead for 2022 in the world of medical research what are you most looking forward to now? You're only allowed one word. Can we do it?
1: One word. Can I? Can I go first? I have one word. Go, go, go. Equity. Tim. Phage. Can it be two
0: words? No. I'm going to let Maria. It's Christmas.
3: It's it's okay. My word is empower, because I want to see that patients, that people who are seeking medical advice. Feel empowered to look after their own health and feel heard because I think that's something that we've seen in a lot of our features and a lot of the studies that we've covered that a lot of people, unfortunately, don't feel heard when they seek medical advice. So empowered is my word.
2: Yes. My word that I'll be looking for in studies is immunocompromised. People like us haven't really had a lot of data around the effectiveness of COVID vaccines and of course the array of medications we take affect our outcomes. So I'm curious as to what will come in the new year.
0: Maria, Tim, Anna and Yaz, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us.
4: It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you. Oh, it was lovely. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about our editor's picks on our website. That's at medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again at the end of January with a discussion on blood transfusions. I'm Dr Hilary Guyt and this is a HiViz Radio production for Medical News Today. Happy holidays! Happy holidays!
2: Happy holidays! Happy holidays. Yeah, yeah, that, that's good. That's this good.
3: is great. <laughs> <laughs>